hopefully you're all ready to get to the uncomfortable subjects <laughs> matter. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We need a springboard to jump off of, and this is a springboard to jump off of. Verse 3, but I would have you know that the head of every every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And then it gets on to some things about prayer, but it comes back to this idea in verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. All right, so we're talking about sexuality. Why are we talking about sexuality? Why have we been talking about it for the last several weeks? Why is it important? And we've outlined why it's important. We've outlined the fact that this is the greatest battle that we are facing today. This is the golden calf of secularism. This is the thing that you are not allowed to speak against or disagree with. And... Therefore, it's the place where we're being asked to compromise and give away more and more of our ground. Also, why is it important? Well, because there are people defecting from the faith. The Bible calls it apostasy. They are deconstructing. And when it comes down to it, it's not scientific arguments that have caused them to do such. As people leave the faith, when they actually start to to say why they are leaving, it inevitably comes down to sexuality. Every single, and I've read hundreds of these deconstruction testimonies, and it always So this is important. Why else is it important? It's important because you and I are flesh and blood, and we can fall. I know people today that were once in ministry and are not now because of sexual sins. I mean, it's just the truth. It's the fact. And we talked about the method. This is not apologetic. In the, century, in the classical sense, I'm not arguing up to sexual morals. The, apolo- the apology that I'm giving is simply this. There is a Lord, and that Lord has made His will known. So this is not a middle school health class either. <laughs> this is a Bible study. And we are seeking to learn how to speak about an issue that has been made the issue of our day. You can divide politics by this very question. 
you can, uh, well, I mean, we can go a hundred different, it's important. This is an important issue and we have to address it. We cannot not address it. We cannot say that the Bible hasn't spoken about it. So we started on this question of what it is, the ontology of it, the ontos, the being, what, what is it? And we have landed a couple weeks ago on this truth that it is a creature of God. It is a creation of God over which He is Lord. I don't think that should be controversial to anyone in here. The problem is, is when we begin to apply that truth. That's when the rubber hits the road and we have to start asking the question, who is the Lord? And we too often will find people that will say, as Pharaoh did, who is the Lord over me in this particular area? But it's a creature of the Lord. He created it, and as Lord, He set its boundaries. He defined it. And he gave it meaning, and he gave it purpose. Last week, we began to apply this first broadly in all things. We began to try to apply what it means for him to be Lord. We applied it broadly to secularism out of the book of James chapter 4 where it talked about the man who says, well, I'm going to go down to such and such a city, and I'm going to continue there a year, and I'm going to buy, I'm going to sell, and I'm going to gain. And he ought to have said, if the Lord will, I will do this or that. That the Lord's will should inform people. And then we have that principle in James where he says, therefore, so based upon what was said above about the man saying, I'm going to go do this and that, therefore for him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. What is that, what, what is that sin of omission there? Living as if the will of God is not important in all areas of your life. It's not like what some pastors say, you know it's to do good and you need to sign up for 6,000 things that you don't have time for. Uh, that's not what it means to do good, knowing, knowing to do good. But knowing that you ought to base everything in your life on the will of God and not on your own will is the sin there. Now Paul, as we saw last week, took that principle and applied it to sexuality specifically in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, we are not to live in some circular, self-fulfilling cycle. Meat for the belly, belly for the meats. And he applied that. To sexuality, he says the body is not for sexual immorality. The body is not for fornication. But the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. 
and we discussed how what James taught broadly against secularism, Paul focused in specifically to this matter of sexuality. Why does this body exist? It exists to please the Lord in all things. So, that is where we left off. So we don't live in this self-contained cycle of the appetite existing to be fulfilled and the things that fulfill it existing solely for the appetite, but that we live to please and do the will of God. I want to come I want to bring this to more application today about his lordship. And I want to begin to answer the egalitarian questions. We talked we defined egalitarianism. What is egalitarianism? That there are no distinctions. There is no distinction between right and darkness, between right and wrong, between this and that. And there is one distinction that we must all notice, and that is the creator-creature distinction. That God is the creator, and He is the Lord, and we are not, and nothing in this creation is not. It's all under Him. And from there became all distinctions. All distinctions. Uh, he separated the light from the darkness. He separated the, the, the sea from the land. He separate, All distinctions flow from the fact that there is a God who has created and made things. And He's Lord over them. So I want to expound on that today. So just by way of introduction, let me follow with some truths. The idea of Lordship is applied... Just not, where we left off last week, not just generally, but to sexual choices that are made. I have had my share of discussions here in the last few weeks about this very thing. And the one thing that is deafening in its absence of Christians, or people who call themselves Christians, when it comes to this topic is the Lord's will. It's always, well, I feel, I think, I this, I that, that this is this and that is that. God created sex. He created it the way it is. God has a design. God has meaning. God has purpose for it. And, of course, the most obvious purpose is life. Procreation, right? Although it's, not, it's important to note as God created, as created by God, purposes beyond that complement and do not contradict it. It has other functions, but... That's the main purpose. Each shall bring forth after its kind. Now, there's a rebellion against this, and it's not even in the way that we think. It's playing out since the advent of the sexual revolution, this rebellion against this very thing. That that sex does not have to connect to the giving of life. It can be separate and distinct and have nothing to do with that. And part of that is technology has allowed that to be set aside. And 
the normalization of, of relationships that defy and deny it uh, have been lifted up. But it is meant for the continuance of life. Sexual reproduction, right? This being so, we, we, we should seek, since He is the Lord, uh, he, we should seek the will of God and all that it, is, that it entails. Now, I think we, we give, people in today's society give very little credence to this idea of seeking the will of God. It's a very fuzzy thing where they're looking for some kind of fuzzy feeling in response. Well, I just want to know what the Lord's will is for this. And, and they're not actually seeking the Lord's will. They're just looking for, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, validation for what they already think and they feel. And that's not what we're supposed to do. Um, what, 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 is it, what, what does it mean? Turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. We're, we're going we're gonna to do some tedious work today on this subject. Uh, pro- procreation does not just in and of itself entail the act that reproduces, that brings new life in the world. It's broader than that. Why should a husband love his wife? Things of that nature. It involves the care and commitment toward one another as husband and wife that created and brought that life. It, there, 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 is a, there is a sense if we look at the, at the teaching of Christ, of Christ and of the prophets and everything about sexuality that, that it speaks against many of the ills of our society like domestic violence and things of that nature, the respect and care of women and th- things of that nature, uh, the integrity of women rather, not, not necessarily the respect and the integrity of women and things of that nature are all brought, brought forth. It, it, it not only involves that, the relational, relational aspect, all of which we're going to eventually get into uh, as taught in areas like Ephesians chapter 5, but it also involves the purposive care and nurture of new life created. All of this having God as its final cause and the direction and pursuit of procreation is about that. Read here in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, and I told you all to turn there, and then I wasn't even turning there, uh, you know, just the, the hypocrisy of the preacher at work here. But one phrase, hey, all right, let's start there in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which ye have heard and known, and your fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength, and his wonderful works that he hath done. He, for he established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare it to their children. Are you seeing a pattern here? That they might set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and might not be as their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation. So what is the purpose of sexuality? What is the purpose of family? What is the, what, what are these purpose? What, what is it? It's directed with God as its final cause. It's directed towards God that they may know God, that they may hope in God, that they may know His will. And the breakdown of the family is the very idea 
of the breakdown of these very things. The idea, for instance, of an absent father in the home is not a truth found in the Scriptures. The idea of a detached father in the home is not a truth that is purported by the Scriptures. Uh, It's alien to the sexual ethics that is taught in the Word of God. The moral obligation of of the Lordship of God, the direction of of, of all of this is towards knowing God, knowing His will, hoping in God, continuing to commit the truths of God to this generation and to that generation and to that generation. The failure to do that is why most seats are empty today. Amen? Can we say that there was a generation that arose that knew not their God in America? And subsequently, where are we at now, 50 years later? Empty churches. With the exception of a, of, of a mega church that provides entertainment here and there and spotted in every city. This is the norm. Is it not the norm? This is, this is, these are the, how the principles of sexuality are meant to work themselves out. The moral obligation of the lordship of God in the matter of sexuality extends much further than the morality of the sexual act itself. And I think that that, that is so much of a problem. And, and so much of our pulpits are, uh, in our country, and in Western culture, are, are, uh, are lit up with, 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 oh, preaching against this act. That act, that act, and not preaching what the sexuality of the Scriptures is purposed to be. It entails much more than an act. Bringing forth of life, bringing forth of, 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 of a nurturing and, 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 ex, and everything else that, that brings forth those, a generation of people that know their God. It extends to all that comes from the act. It extends to the idea of being a faithful husband, a faithful wife, nurturing parents for the glory of God. Does that make sense so far? All right. I'm just always worried about making people mad. So, The act itself, though, let's back the truck up. And once again, I'm not talking, I'm, this is not a middle school health class. But the act of sex itself can transgress the boundaries of God. Right? Uh, any discussion of sexual ethics must admit this. You know one thing I can't get someone to admit anymore? Is that there is anything wrong with anything. I even directly asked one. I showed Holly this this week, and for some reason I found myself in Twitter debates uh, here lately. And I, I'm not even, I mean, I, I'm a nobody that has very few followers, so I just assert myself just to see what will happen every once in a while. And I could not just get this, a couple different people to admit that adultery was evil. Adultery. One of the commandments. I couldn't get them to say that it was absolutely wrong. What? Yeah. 
well, I mean, I don't even know about that. I mean, it's, it's, so, so let's admit something. There are some things that are wrong and transgress God's boundaries. Amen? I was sharing this with you all last week. This was 10 years ago in a master's level classroom where we were reading articles, peer-reviewed scientific articles that were saying that there was nothing inherently wrong with pedophilia. Now we have it in state capitals being like uh, California being debated. Because once you start saying, well, there is no boundaries, at least in this situation, you start, like we were talking about last week, we got uh, Bugs Bunny drawing the line in the sand and Yosemite Sam crossing it until he ends up going off the cliff. Uh, there are things that transgress. They transgress God's moral boundaries. So let me give you, for instance, commitment. Is there a commitment? even a need for commitment anymore. I, I've learned some new phrases just listening to Christians in Christian school, Christian school kids talking. And I'm just listening to them. And I learn new terms about things, about sex that have zero commitment. And that's in Christian schools. Uh, the hookup culture, uh, or what it, what it used to be called. But it... Uh, and... and and what, what, what is this? But that very thing that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 6. Meat for the belly, belly for the meats. Hey, if you're involved in that self-contained cycle, you trample everything under you and under your desires. That's what happens. You want to know why there's so many people that are traumatized in our culture? Because they're used so often. Without care, without commitment. While... There are things that God says He hates. We try to skirt around them. We try to say they're not so, but they are. And while the law is not specifically what I want to talk about right now, and we will get to the law, and we will get to the objections, like I said, uh, well, what's the difference between that and you wearing polyester or something like that? Uh, because the law says that too. Well, we're going to talk about some of those things eventually. But I just want to, we, we just have to admit that there is right and wrong. You cannot approach the subject without admitting that there is light and darkness, and there is a God that has separated the light from the darkness. Every sexual decision you make, either to ponder on in the privacy of your mind or to act upon in public or private, is a moral decision. Amen? All right, one or two people think so. It's a moral decision. What you think about or what you act upon sexually is a moral decision that is either good or evil. It either conforms to God as Lord or it rejects and rebels against God as Lord. We can't, we can't pretend that I can go around and go around that, well, Jesus Christ himself. He says, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery, right? 
So I cannot go out there and get on my phone or on something else and watch pornography and not be in rebellion against my Lord, even though uh, it's a victimless crime. It's, well, first of all, it's not. There's plenty of victims <laughs> all throughout that process before it ever hit my phone that I'm now partaking in other people's sins. But I'm in rebellion against God for what I'm thinking in my head and what I am purposefully doing. Everything about sex that's either occurring in your mind or acting out in the real world is moral. It's either good or evil. It's either conforming to God as Lord or it's rebelling against Him as Lord. There are some people that their entire lives are defined by rebellion against God as Lord, all while they're wearing a Christian name tag, right? It's moral because it counts. It matters when we stand before judgment. The books will be open, and every man will be judged according to their deeds the deeds done in their body. It's moral because it happens before the Lord who established a moral reality and will judge all moral choices either in this life or in the life to come. You have to set aside... You, we, have to, we have set aside all ideas of judgment. Like I said, what are the two most quoted words in the Bible? Everybody knows the first two words of, the, of this passage? Judge not. Can't judge me. No one can judge me. And ultimately, if, we, if you apply what they are saying, they say not even God can judge me. Why? Because he's love, like we talked about in Sunday school. All of sexual immorality, like the existence of evil itself, is a deviation from the good. As Lord over sexuality, God has greater ends... Think about what what are the ends of secularism? What's their goal? What, what, what is it gaining? Well, it denies that there is in, like we talked about last week. What is the philosophy driving modern sexuality? There is no meta-narrative, there is no purpose, there is no design, there is no nature. It's just me and what I want to do with this plastic reality out here. I am God. There's no end to anything. There's no purpose to anything. Or if there is purpose, it's purpose of self-fulfillment, self-gratification, self-enlightenment, self-this, self-that, self-that. And, 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 and we think that those ends are greater than the ends that God created. You know what we just read in Psalm 78? That's great ends. That's great purpose. Amen? To proclaim those greater ends and point away from sexual sins is not, a killed, um, is not to kill imagined fun, but lead to the Lord. And we have to plead with those in our culture. You are choosing, I, I, you are choosing the less for the, instead of the greater. I think of John Bunyan's picture. Of he, got, he has the guy bent over and focused on the ground as he's raking up dung 
with a rake, and that's, just, that's what he's doing with life. All the while, there is behind him the Lord offering him a crown. Now, setting aside the morality fixed in the creator-creature distinction, what does the nature and even the nature of God teach us about sexuality? So I want to talk about nature. All right, we have egalitarianism or complementarianism. Egalitarianism says there is no difference between things. Everything is equal. Everything is the same. Complementarianism says there is a distinct difference. The arguments, they, then they will argue from scriptures as it relates to the nature of God and the nature of things that have been created by God. It is not counterintuitive as we want to, I want to talk about nature, that we live in such a society that this is denied is, very, is, is the oddest thing to me. But uh, human sexuality is built on, one, in a, on a fundamental principle. That each human being has a sex. I can't believe I live in a world that has denied the existence of nature. That's the philosophical underpinnings. Where such a where such a such a thing is considered taboo to say. In order to have sex, according to the most basic definition of the word, implies that each participant is a sexual being. Now, like I said, this is not going to be a middle school health class. One engages in sex because one is sexual, though, in nature and possesses in their person sexual attributes. Not in the Freudian sense are we sexual, that everything that drives us is sex. In fact, that's part of the catalyst of the whole sexual revolution is flawed Freudian philosophy. But what does this say? Who made you how you are? These attributes that you and I have are real. They're not plastic, meaningless things that we mold with our own minds. That's the philosophy. I'm not, this is actually, I'm getting into the actual philosophical terms. What's that movie, Inside Out? Everything that was true about Riley was what was the structure she built in her own mind. Uh, not that, not, not that, that ideology of what makes a person a person, but reality. Um, the, these things are attributed to us. They are real. They are defined and dispensed to each person by God. There is an authority to nature, given to it by nature's God. The biblical complementarian view 
allows for individuals to ex- exist with real complementary functions. If you haven't noticed by studying biology, there is a symbiosis to reality. There is this needs this to be. And it works like that, right? Uh, Going back to what we just read about Paul, there is an equality in that sense. A man needs a woman and a woman needs a man. The man is not without the woman and the woman is not without the man, right? 1 Corinthians 11, we just read it a few minutes ago. These are distinctions created by God and exist and thrive in a concrete reality. It continues, be fruitful, be multiplied. He created them, male and female, and, and, told, and commanded. That's the, that's the thrust of the very commandment is there is a, symbio, a symbiosis that exists whereby we bring forth after our own kind and so on and fill the earth. There are two classes of arguments that I want, I want to actually start getting into the arguments, and I, I hope I can get this done in the next 10 minutes although I'm looking at how, many, how much notes I have and I'm not getting through it very fast. There is an argument from anthropology that I want to deal with this week. That was all free. That was just the introduction. <laughs> and then I want to next week, or in two weeks from now, because we'll be back in John 13 next week, talk about the nature of God. All right, so anthropology. Overall, the view of anthropology has been skewed by the advent of scientific materialism and science fiction. If there is no God, and that's what's argued, first of all, by those who deny God, all things can be explained by material processes alone. Worse, purposeless random events has created you. Gone. Go. There is. There is no direction to evolution. There is no. There is no purpose to evolution. It's just random things that are occurring and occurring, and for some reason they get better and better and better and better and better through the law of um, of uh, natural selection. And uh, so there's no nature in anything. There's no way. There's no no way things ought to be. Everything develops in flux. What is today is not what was yesterday, and it will not be what is tomorrow. Okay. So another philosophical underpinning to today today today's society. Uh, all is changing according to the laws of cause and effect, without any direction to which it should go. There is no truth, no morality, no beauty in such a world. There is no way of knowing uh, to know a changing thing to be anything specifically right now because it is in flux. It is, it is changing. There is no way to even know that we know anything at all since our minds ourselves are always changing. You see how this whole ideology flows. If scientific materialism can answer, offer any questions, it's this. It's only incoherence, gibberish, asserting nothing. But such is the state of current scientific ideology. It serves egalitarianism well because nothing is meaningful. There really is no difference. Even in a moral world, there's no difference between me shaking, uh, shaking Brother Watt's hands or throwing hot cup of coffee on him, right? 
Uh, it's just the same chemical reactions that cause both. It, it's, not, it, it's meaningless. It speaks such, uh, with such authority to ultimately say nothing that can be said with any authority. It sounds really smart. And people believe it. There are probably people sitting right here to believe there is no purpose. And the worst thing you can ever be called is a science denier, <laughs> right? Oh, you, you people go to that church and none of you all believe in science. And then there's science fiction. How many of you all like Star Trek? I love Star Trek. Or at least I did to recently, and now I've, I've, I've had to shut it off because I just really can't, I really can't watch it anymore. But I still like Star Trek. I'll still watch the old ones. And then Holly will roll her eyes at me because of Star Trek. But science fiction comes along in the same vein and offers a different view of sexuality. Don't think that Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock did not keep teach people a different view of sexuality. With an empty promise of endless technological progress, each individual will one day be able to make and remake themselves according to their own will. You don't get too far into the 90s on Star Trek before, before that becomes apparent. And it assumes such progress is the history, is part of the history of the universe. If what has developed by chance here through a law of cause and effect, then as we reach out into the vast universe, there will be many different ways in which it has developed. That's the Star Trek philosophy of the universe. There could be, if we explore deep enough into the universe, many different expressions of sexuality. Therefore, the authority of science fiction convinces us that we must not have any dogmatic view of sexuality now. Further, they say, everything's contingent. Everything could be different. And, and therefore, it leaves it open for all manner of sexual expression and free choice in creating one's own sexual expressions. Isn't this just the language of our world, right? Contingency in nature, however are not expressions of our freedom, but God's. Amen? All right, let me explain. Why does water have the nature it has? Because God made it that way. It's not my free will that made, it wa made that water, water uh, have two atoms of, of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen, or, or yeah, H2O and to have the properties that it has and everything that it does and set all the boundaries and everything. Everything that was... Water could have been different. But God made it exactly in the parameters it made. It's not expressions of our free will, but God's. We can only subdue what God has put in our power, not change the nature of anything He made. To base what you believe on what cannot possibly be observed is fiction indeed. Here's the fact, and I want to get to the end. I feel like I haven't even started, and it's 10 after, and I'm sorry. And is it warm in here, or is it just me? No? All right. Well, you're not the one up here trying to talk about the subjects. So. <laughs> the fact is, what we have is a world that God created, 
not a world we created. God created man and woman as they are, with the natures they have. While God created the seahorse a certain way, sexually speaking, we cannot observe that God has created mankind. We, we can observe also that man, God has created mankind a certain way, sexually speaking. I sat into a, a history class one day, and I, I don't remember even why I got into a conversation with this uh, lady that was sticking, uh, sitting right next to me. And, uh, and, her, and we got into an argument, uh, not an argument, just a discussion. It was a friendly discussion. And uh, by the way, we, we, we shouldn't look down on anybody. And, and uh, we're sinners. And the person we're speaking to is a sinner that needs hear, to hear about Christ. And uh, I was I, I was uh, blessed to be able to give the lady that lady this gospel today, but but uh, the the argument was was uh, the argument was well God made dogs and or, and dogs behave this way, so it's perfectly all right for man for a man, a men and women to behave that same way. What an ugly moral monster that is! I, I mispronounce monster. Such an ideology is. God speaks of human sexuality in the scriptures repeatedly and without contradiction. Turn, if you will, to Genesis 2. Genesis 2. The male, the female, births, nurtures, brings forth children. That's the ethics of the Scripture. There is a process in which a man is raised in such a reality, will take a wife, will be faithful to that wife, and, and what is brought forth from that relationship is, is nurtured until, in, until and codified in, within the realms of that boundary. The children that grow up learn to obey and honor both parents, until they themselves leave and do it all again. Here it is. Genesis 2.24 Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. This is the after their own kind statement for humanity. Therefore shall a man leave his own father or his father and his mother shall cleave that talks about faithfulness, unto his wife, they shall be one, that's real unity, they shall be one flesh. There is a process here, leaving father and mother. Uh, What is the the, uh, fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. What does the law teach us? What is the law? What what it teaches us this very thing: marriage and parentage that sees sexual distinctions, man, wife, father, mother. Even the systems of authority that that produces is a declaration of the scriptures. How can? I'm going to have to stop there, to be honest with you. I wanted to get, my whole goal today was to get to the argument that uh, 
that there is neither male nor female uh, that they want to use from Galatians chapter 3. But it's already 15 after, and I don't want to put you all to sleep. But I do want to end by talking, just mentioning this. There is a purpose here. And we connect this with Psalm 78. The reason not only why our churches are dying, which the church cannot die, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That doesn't mean that there has to, there has to be this strong force in America called the church. Uh, but it, it'll continue and God will win. But the reason churches are dying is because we failed to see what God has instructed the purposes God has instructed here. Psalm 78, that the generation to come may know. We go down back to West Liberty. You go into the, the prison there in West Liberty. I forgot that it was a little sandy or what, whatever it is called. Eastern. Go from cell to cell. You know what you're going to find. You're going to find people that did not have a father in the home. Possibly even a mother in the home. That were raised by relatives instead. Raised in the foster care system. Raised without, a, without what God said the purpose was meant to be. We, we see crime. You know what is... The, you, you know what's been one of, the mo, one of the number one common denominators of all these shootings perpetrated by young men is? No father. Often, no mother. As we continue to say, there's no meaning. There's no purpose. We toss this to the side and says, I make my own reality. And we get lost in that whole meat for the belly and belly for the meat's philosophy and are not submitted to the Lord in what we do in this area. We contribute to the chaos around us. Whereas... The mandate for humanity, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, replenish it. There is purpose here that we have. I'm, I'm excited for Nick and Lindsay to bring forth a child. I, I'm, I'm excited for myself as, 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 uh, as Eli and... and, and uh, Oakley, <laughs> my mind went blank. As I get a chance to bring them up and prepare them that they may do that same thing again, that they may cleave to their husband, to their wife, and bring forth children who also know the Lord. To be a part of that, to be a part of this greater purpose for sexuality is important for us to see. And I know I've been saying it's important, it's important all day long. I feel like that's been the phrase. It's kind of, it, it is so important. You know, the answer to the ills of our society all come back to this one thing. There's no place for the family anymore. 
There's no, especially no place for the Christian family. And we wonder why things, you know, even the, even the most ardent Marxists will look at society and say, man, something's wrong. This is chaos. But none of them will make this one thing that there is purpose. You cannot just have a pleasure-driven, self-created society and have people that walking around with a sense of hope and a sense of knowing God and a sense of knowing purpose. You can't. You know, you know what the vision for society is? It's simply this. You ever read Brave... I'm, I'm pontificating again. I'm sorry. You ever read Brave New World? Brave New World was, uh, was uh, this idea that uh, everything's equal. Everyone's equal. There is no distinctions. All babies are engineered outside of the human body. All sex is just for play, and all life is com under complete control. And that's, a, that's actually the political goal that we're headed to. And, there is part, and even an atheist who wrote that book saw that there was no room for the individual, no room for purpose, no room for, in, for anything about the individual in such a world. But we have, we have a, something much greater that we're speaking of. And, and we're ashamed to proclaim it. I, I, I can't believe that we have come to a point where Christians cannot even make a difference between the right and wrong of adultery. When this is what God created sexuality for, to be, a man and woman faithful to one another, bringing forth another generation and teaching them, that generation, to hope in the Lord, that they may teach the generation to come to also hope in the Lord, and so on and so forth. There is greater purpose, and I pray that we realize it more and more. We're going to stop there. I didn't get to the egalitarian arguments of, uh, from Galatians chapter 3. Is, what, did, what did Paul mean when he says, in Christ there is neither male nor female? There are some people that are interpreting that a, very, a, a, a certain way, and we need to, we need to uh, ascertain what that means, and we will next time we pray, bring this subject up. Let's stand, and we'll be dismissed. There is no in, invitation. I just ask for each and every one. Well, the invitation is simple. If you don't know Christ, get, come, talk to me, talk to one of the elders, talk to one of the ladies, and we'll talk about Christ all afternoon until you know whether or not you're saved. If there's something in your life going on that you need help with, you need prayer with, come talk to us. We'll, we'll spend all afternoon praying with you if you need it. That's the invitation, uh, and it's open. But, uh, but I do ask that you go away examining just one question. In this subject, is Christ my Lord? In this one subject, is Christ my Lord? Or is he not? Ponder that question. Let's be dismissed in a word of prayer. Thank you, brother, for being here. Do you care to dismiss us in prayer?